Welcome to Ejil, the podcast. Welcome to this episode of Ejil, the podcast. My name is Sarah Nauen. I'm an editor-in-chief of the European Journal of International Law. Going by the news headlines, the world seems to be facing a significant number of crises. Conflicts are flaring up, climate disasters are hitting left, right and center, and millions of people are deprived of basic necessities. Confronted with these scenarios, people tend to look at international organizations. There appears to be something hopeful or redeeming about international organizations. They are expected to do what states individually cannot or do not do. On what assumptions are these hopes based? Do international organizations have their own independent will and identity, or are they in fact mere instruments of their member states? How we theorize international organizations is often shaped by how others have theorized them, what the accepted wisdom is. And for that, we often turn to international organizations scholars. Today, we're going to discuss the thoughts of two thinkers and practitioners in international organizations. The first is Samuel Quatro Boaten Asante, better known as SKB Asante, born in what is now known as Ghana, and who worked as chief legal advisor and director of what once was the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations. The second scholar on international organizations is Chinese law professor Rao Ping. The occasion for this discussion is a year-long symposium that the European Journal of International Law has hosted, titled Hidden Gems in International Organizations Law. For that symposium, the article on Asante was written by Kehinde Olayoe. Kehinde is Assistant Professor of Law at the Hamad bin Khalifa University in Doha, Qatar. The contribution on Rao was written by Yifan Chen. Yifan is an Associate Professor of International Law at Peking University Law School. Welcome, Keinde. Thank you so much, Sarah, for the introduction. Welcome, everyone. And welcome, Yifan. Thank you, Sarah. It's a great pleasure joining this podcast. Great to have you. But before we go to your contributions, let's get some context on the symposium as a whole from one of the editors of this symposium, Jan Klabbers, Professor of International Law at Helsinki University. Welcome, Jan. Good morning, Sarah. Nice to be here. So, Jan, together with Guy Fiti Sinclair and Devika Hovel, you edited the symposium titled Hidden Gems in International Organizations Law. Can you explain the title? How much time do you have? Very uh, limited. Yeah, that's what I feared. In 2015, I wrote a piece in the European Journal suggesting that every international organization's lawyer was a functionalist. It's functionalism. The idea that international organizations are set up by member states to do things for member states, for the benefit of member states, is the dominant, predominant, hegemonic approach. And some people thought I was exaggerating. So we thought, first with Guy Sinclair, that maybe we should organize a symposium to discuss that. We invited a few people to write about leading classical scholars in international organizations law, asking effectively whether international organizations law would have intellectual resources different from functionalism. 
So he invited six people to write about six protagonists. And the end result was that we couldn't really find anything that would help us understand functionalism and maybe um, think of alternatives. So then we invited Devika Havel to join us and cast the net a bit wider, looking for hidden gems. Were there people we had overlooked? Were there people that we were not familiar with, maybe because coming from different parts of the world, whatever. So we were looking for hidden gems, effectively. It went with a call for papers, so a number of people responded to that, and in the end, uh, six papers were selected. And those by Yifeng and Kehinde are the final two to be published this year. So on that call for papers, Yifeng and Kehinde, so you responded to a call for papers, and you submitted an abstract and decided to submit an abstract on the authors that you chose, Yifeng, Rao Peng, and Kehinde SKB Asante. Why those authors? Why did you submit an abstract on those authors? Why did you think these people were the hidden gems? Kehinde, would you like to go first? Yes, please. Um, so I chose SKB Asante because I was convinced that he was a perfect example of a hidden gem. Um, for scholars of international law, he's not very, very prominent. But if you check the archives very carefully, you'll find his name. And this was what sparked my curiosity. And when I saw the call for papers, I thought, OK, this will be a perfect forum to discuss um, this prominent um, lawyer and um, international organizations law scholar and practitioner. Thanks. And you, Fan? The reason that I have uh, uh, chosen uh, uh, Professor Zhao Geping is that uh, he's actually one of the founding fathers for the discipline of law of international organizations in China, uh, together with another former professor of Peking University, uh, Professor Liang Xi. Both the Professor Liang Xi and Professor Zhao has made an excellent and I would say foundational contribution in making the discipline visible today. And I would say Professor Zhao's work has in a great way uh, shaped the intellectual landscape, the academic style, and I would say the aesthetics of the discipline in China. And I think this is also probably very important uh, for us. But his work is not well known to the Western scholars because of the language barrier. So I think it would be probably necessary and useful to embed his work in the scholarship internationally. And I think uh, this call is very important for this purpose. So before we go into looking what is so gem-like of these uh, people and their thinkers, let's look a bit about how the gems were shaped and formed, because gems always are shaped and formed by their context. Can you tell us a bit, Keinda, about SKP Asante's context? How did he become the international organization's thinker that he became? Well, um, he has, you know, a very, very interesting background, but I mean, unique in certain aspects, but very, very similar to the backgrounds of many first-generation African scholars and practitioners. So he was born in colonial England, you know, in what was part of, you know, the British Empire. And just before independence, moved to England to study law as, you know, postgraduate studies. And, you know, soon after that, he went back to Ghana and then moved to Yale um, for his GSD program. 
And then it was after his GSD program, or well, very soon after, that he basically, you know, became an international um, organization's law practitioner. So um, very, very interesting. But it's the trajectory, you know, which sort of makes this kind of unique. And, you know, how his background sort of had an influence on the kind of work he would come to do much later. And, you know, this is all part of his legacy. Okay, so with Asante, we really have the international organization's practitioner. Yifan, I think with Rao, we really have an international organization's scholar. How did he become the scholar that he was in the end? Uh, I think that's also a very interesting story. Uh, Rao was originally trained as a scholar of diplomatic history, and that was understood as part of the international curriculum at Peking University. And because of the departure of Professor Liang Xi, Professor Rao was asked to teach the course of international organizations. And then he went to the United States, especially to the uh, New York University School of Law, where he audited different courses. And he visited, I think, a great variety of English books. And upon his return, he decided to produce a textbook in international organizations law. And that laid his foundation to become an international organization lawyer. I think definitely a personal interest in international organizations, but there's also clearly a need from the intellectual uh, circle that someone needed to develop the knowledge of the discipline. So let's now go to their views on international organizations. Kindi, if you had to summarize how Asante saw international organizations, what would you say? Well, in one word, I would say very, very pragmatic. So he was very, very pragmatic, well informed of, you know, the difficulties and the challenges of being an international lawyer from the third world in the middle of the new international economic order, but also very, you know, um, very, very well informed of functionalism, which is, you know, (laughs) the argument which is made overall that, you know, at the very, very foundation, he was also a functionalist. But I would, you know, summarize and say he was extremely pragmatic. But just to challenge you a bit on that point. So what you described about his background is mostly for post-graduate studies, a Western education, and then a pragmatist. That doesn't strike me as particularly novel in the law of international organizations. Many international organization scholars have a Western education and are very pragmatic. So what sets Asante apart? Or perhaps nothing? So that's, you know, a good question and a good challenge. Well, I mean, so it's not necessarily that, you know, this was novel, you know, in the sense of, um, oh, this is groundbreaking. No one has ever done anything like this. But it's the fact that situating his scholarship and intellectual history allows us to go back into history and examine an arm of the United Nations, which doesn't feature very prominently in international scholarship, which is the United Nations Center on Transnational Cooperation. So I think, you know, this is what I try to do in the paper. I say, you know, fine, there's nothing novel or groundbreaking about this, but this is a good example. And there are certain reasons why this probably doesn't feature very prominently in mainstream scholarship. But did his background as someone from newly independent Africa, did that shape his approach? Did that make a difference? Absolutely. Um, but I think he struggled, like you know, many other people. There's this, you know, 
awareness or self-awareness of your background but you know and all you know also the awareness that you sort of have to detach yourself from you know personal preferences and you know your personal thoughts and concerns at the more international level so you know it's sort of you know you see the conflict in his scholarship you know you see okay the struggles and the choices that are made in terms of what to say what to publish and, you know, how to approach certain international law issues. So conflict, struggle. Yifen, to what extent do these words also resonate in your thinking about Rao? I, I would say that the, uh, I would say conflict, struggle, and probably paradox also exists in Rao's scholarship. And that's probably a very important feature for, I think, scholars from the developing world. Uh, on the one hand, I think they have to have to incorporate the universal idea about international organizations. On the other hand, I think Rao is also trying to give a voice, a local voice, towards the concept or image of international organizations. And often the, he has to, to make choices among different parameters, possibilities. And, and at the end, this makes his scholarship or views on international organizations not that cons co consistent or coherent at all. And I think this is also a very interesting feature when we think about Rao's work on international organizations. And in, in your case, um, looking at Rao's personal background, to what extent do you see this struggle and, and conflict that Gine mentioned reflected in Rao himself? Um, I think for Rao, he, he, he had his, he had, a, you know, he spent about like 12 years in the countryside working as a farm worker and then as a teacher. And after that, he made his effort to go into university. So he tried to see the international world as a cooperative, as a, and as an internationalist. He wanted to incorporate and embrace China's incorporation into the global system. And he sees himself towards that line. But meanwhile, he also understands that China's, you know, emphasis on sovereignty, on state sovereignty. And that creates tension in his scholarship, how to make a reconciliation between a universalist outlook and an emphasis on the so sovereignty and the importance of the self national self-determination. Jan, you edited these two uh, special issues to the symposia on international organizations thinkers. And if you now look at the two scholars we're discussing now, are they very different from the mainstream or are they like most other international organizations scholars? They are different in the, having different backgrounds coming from different parts of the world, but I don't think their approaches are that different from, say, someone like Schermers or uh, Amela Singh, who, of course, also comes from uh, a different part of the world, has written a wonderful textbook uh, 20 years ago, 30 years ago almost. <laughs> Oops. Um, so I, I don't think they are that different. And one of the outcomes, to my mind, of, of our symposia is that functionalism is a broad church capable of encompassing approaches that are slightly different from one another, but still part of that broad church. 
Some of them go more into a constitutionalist direction, like someone like uh, Wilfred Jenks, who used to run the ILO for a bit, is perhaps best seen as a predecessor to global administrative law. So a bit more on the constitutional side of the spectrum. Others are very, very state-centric. I think that applies to someone like Rosalind Higgins. That applies even more to the one portrayed by Francisco Quintana, Castaneda. And uh, I think there are basically two outliers in the 12 people that we've portrayed. One is uh, Anne-Marie Lavois, a wonderful paper by Dimitri van der Meersche, who uh, makes the point that instead of looking at the traditional member-state organization relationship, which is central to functionalism, Leroy focuses on risk assessment. So you could say she circumvents. Yeah, and Leroy was the legal advisor of, of the, the World, World Bank. Bank. So yeah. a real practitioner yeah. um, and not the, the textbook producer. Yeah, which also explains why she was a little bit uh, below the radar screen, perhaps. Being tucked away, well, tucked away in Washington is, uh, I guess... Uh, not that terrible a fate, but you see what I mean. And the other is uh, Finn Seierstedt, who has uh, been portrayed before, including by myself, actually, uh, as someone who is not a functionalist, is one of the very few who goes against the grain. I, I call him somewhere an organicist, by, uh, for want of a better term. Um, but he never had much following. Like he's always mentioned in a footnote or so. It's almost a perfunctory, compulsory footnote. See also Zayostat for a different opinion. And that injustice is now addressed by Fernando Bourdin. I think so, yes. At least Fernando makes a, uh, a plausible case that we should have a different and another and a fresher look, perhaps, at, at Zayostat's contribution. That's not going to be easy. Zayostat was not the most disciplined of authors, perhaps, and the, the big bulk of his work is uh, collected posthumously, so we can't even blame him for that. But um, there is something there, there, which may help us understand international organizations better than functionalism allows. Okay, understanding international organizations better. If we understand organization, international organizations better, what hope should we have of international organizations in today's world? Keinde. I believe there is lots of, you know, pessimism, but I think there's still room for hope. We need international organizations. International organizations are extremely important. But um, of course, we have to be also, you know, very, very realistic and understand the context in which they, you know, perform their functions. And of course, the limitations, you know, and as international law scholars, I guess we have a very, very um, difficult task of sort of, you know, ensuring that international organizations perform their functions. But at the same time, we also have to be very, very critical of the work that's done by international organizations. And we see this in the shift in scholarship, the shift towards accountability and, you know, the shift towards understanding international organizations from more broader um, theories of international law. So was Asante ever concerned with accountability? Well, um, the context in which he wrote was slightly different, you know, so this was the 1970s and then the 1980s. And during this period, you know, 
the question of, for example, what we now know as business and human rights was so prominent, but it was already imagined. And, you know, so I believe that the um, urgency of accountability yeah. did not exist during that period. And so, of course, but, you know, this is the fact that, you know, international organizations exist in a particular context and also cease to exist. So, of course, the UNCTC has, you know, disappeared, but its work continues in other international organizations. Yes. So, Yifen, what about your views on the relevance of international organizations today? I think international organizations are still highly relevant and probably will be continue to be relevant for a very long while. I think the most important function for international organizations is to institutionalize politics and to translate politics into administration in a way. And that's very rational of functionalism, uh, and uh, which also gives us a very optimistic understanding about international organizations. But there's also a limit towards what, what, kind, what kind of politics can be institutionalized. And we have always seen that politics can escape the institutionalized form, or policy might even paralyze the existing forms of international organizations. So I think international organizations will be relevant, but it also very much depends to what extent the states would like the organization to function in today's world. So what should we be thinking about then? Let, let me try to <laughs> think about it. Good. Then we first go to Jan and, yeah. and then you think <laughs> about that one. Jan, you are known as um, an author who has heavily criticized the functionalist thinking in international organizations law. So what do you think is the relevance of international organizations today? Oh, I think they're hugely relevant. But we, as a discipline, we make uh, two mistakes which we should perhaps correct in order to come to a better understanding. The first is that we, when we write about international organizations, we tend to write about five of them. There's roughly 300, maybe 400, whatever, depends how you count. But we write only about the UN, the European Union, the World Trade Organization, IMF, and the World Bank. None of those five have any claim to being representative of the genus international organization. They're all very special. Uh, you, you cannot compare them to the World Meteorological Organization or the European Mid-Range Weather Forecasting Organization or even the Euro European University Institute, your employer, also an international organization. But Kehinde has addressed that injustice because she wrote on the United Nations Center on Transnational Corporations. Yeah, which I think is wonderful. The symposium doesn't fall into that trap. Yep. Good. <laughs> Second problem. The, 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 um, well, yes, I said there were two problems, but I forgot for the moment the, what the second the, was. The second trap of international or the scholarship. Uh, ah, yes. We uh, when, when we speak of international organizations, we tend to stress the adjective international. We do not ever look at them as organizations doing things that organizations typically do, whether it's your local fire department, the city hospital, the garbage collection service of your municipality or Harvard University, all organizations, they all do three things which we have completely lost track of with international organizations. That is that they regulate, that is that they monitor and manage what they regulate, and that is that in the course of regulation and monitoring and managing, they distribute costs and benefits. I think we should put that prism far more prominently on the table 
um, and see what happens. And those costs and benefits are distributed not only amongst member states, but amongst people, amongst companies, amongst civil society entities. So we should treat them like the uh, political and administrative agencies they are in the same way that we would look at how a local social security office functions. We should not just view them as manifestations of some international grand scheme of cooperation, bringing us the salvation of mankind, because that's, of course, that's far too much to ask. And if you look, use that yardstick, then, of course, they're bound to fail. So, Yifan, back to you, because you have argued that Rao's thinking on international organization is very influential in China. You've also argued that Rao really was a functionalist. Do you think that in China there is an openness towards approaching international organizations in the way that Jan just described? I think it, it, it is probably currently not that case. I think uh, international organizations are not approached as a great, great uh, or grand international scheme. Uh, I think it is very much approached from a functionalistic or even instrumental uh, perspective. Uh, Zhao's perspective towards international organizations was highly virtuous. He saw international organizations would bring uh, cooperation among states almost automatically or by nature. But increasingly, I think the scholars and decision makers in China would approach international organizations also more from an instrumental perspective. And I think I think it is also very important for us to to go beyond of that to go beyond that. It is too easy to see international organizations as an administrative body or or, or 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 doing banal administrative things. I think it should I think invoke our political commitment to do something common jointly, and that's important for us. Thank you. I feel that there's a new research agenda coming up and we look forward to all those articles on how we should approach international organizations differently and receiving all those articles at the European Journal of International Law. Thank you, Keinde. Thank you, Yifen. Thank you, Jan. And thank you, Jamie Morris, our sound producer. Thank you to you, listener, for tuning in. For more EGIL podcasts and more international law, visit egil.org and egiltalk.org.